Um, let's just pray. Thank you, Father, that you haven't left us alone to reason for ourselves, but that you poured out yourself when you poured out your Holy Spirit through Jesus. Just thank you, Father, that your Holy Spirit dwell in us and uh, help us to see you and see your heart as it actually is. Thank you, Father, for your love for us. Amen. Glory to God. I'm going to try and stick to the plot here so we can get uh, through this because I've already said a whole bunch of mouthfuls. Um, but the reason I told Shelly um, that my message had to come after my last message, which was two weeks ago, is because I wanted to keep filling out the picture of the high priest. And the reason why I wanted to keep filling out the picture of the high priest is because we can hear these theological terms and it can kind of be like, what? It can sound very academic and intellectual. But those terms are actually painting a, a picture of the, the heart of God, right? And so I want to try, I wanted to keep painting the picture of God that the high priest is supposed to paint. So we can start to have more of a meaning than high priest. I don't know if most of us realize it, but when you think of a priest, what do you think of? Somebody dressed up in a garb with their garb up to their neck so tight that it's so stuffy, they have this thing around their neck. And we, we think of stuffiness. We don't think of a good time. We don't think of relaxing. We don't think of liberty. Like we think of like, you know, that's what we call reverence actually. And so I wanted to keep um, bringing these things out so we could see the whole picture. And two weeks ago, if you hadn't listened to the message, go back and listen to it. But two weeks ago, what I did was we looked at the high priest from just an earthly perspective. And what I mean by looking at the high priest from an earthly perspective we only looked at it from the perspective of sin and death having already entered in. So I talked about the high priest from the perspective of sin and death having entered into the earth and what the ministration of this high priest would be in light of sin and death entering in. That's the, the place that we came from it. Um, I, I want to fill out the rest of it because the, the idea of the high priest doesn't begin with the fall of man. <laughs> I'm going to say this a lot in the message, but I just want you guys to know a lot of our thoughts about God and what He's done in Jesus are born from what we think about the sin of the world. But, but God was busy with something long before the sin of the world. And so the idea of the high priest didn't come in just because sin came in. Now, the high priest did deal with sin because it came in. But the idea of the high priest predates the creation of man. It doesn't just begin once man is created, and it most certainly doesn't find its origin after the fall. And so I want us to see what the high priest is all about from the perspective of sin not being in the picture. Right? Because if you only think of the high priest from the perspective of sin being in the picture, you only have a little piece of it. And so the idea behind the high priest, and we'll get into the definition of, of the high priest, and then I'll make it deeply personal. Right? So bear with me as we talk about some of these theological statements. But the idea of the high priest makes its first appearance when God says in Genesis, let there be light. That's the first appearance of the high priest. When God says, let there be light. If you go look in Exodus, Moses fashions the earthly tabernacle according to what? The shadow of the heavenly things. The heavens was created long before man was even created. Right? And so there was a heavenly tabernacle prior to the fall of man. Prior to the sin of Adam, there was a heavenly tabernacle. Right? And if there was a heavenly tabernacle, do you know what that means? There would need to be a minister of the tabernacle. There would need to be a priest. And again, I know it's a struggle for us because we all have our own thoughts about what a priest is. And so every time I say that word, you're getting a mental image, right? And that mental image is not serving you with love, peace, or joy. That mental image is serving you with stuffiness. I mean, you can walk into some of these churches sometimes and you feel like, oh my gosh, is God scrutinizing me? <laughs> you can feel it in the air. And that's because of our mental images, right? So if there was a heavenly tabernacle when God made the heavens and there were, because that's what Moses fashioned the earthly one after, there would have had to be a minister of that tabernacle. You can't have a temple without someone performing the ministry. And so the Father in heaven, that's what the Father of lights in heaven, 
The Father in heaven anointed the Son. That's a religious term, I know. It just means He chose, He ordained, He purposed. The Father in heaven anointed the Son to be that minister when He said, let there be light, and light appeared. That's why John would later come and describe Jesus as the light. The same light that appeared in Genesis. Right? You guys follow me so far? So there was an anointing of the high priest before the fall of man because there was a tabernacle, a heavenly one, and there, had, there was a ministry that God was purposing could be performed in that heavenly tabernacle. He had to have a minister that could perform that ministry. He ordained the Son to perform that ministry when He said, let there be light in Genesis. Okay? See how all that happened before sin? Okay. You, listen. We know that there's sin. We're not ignorant of the serpent's devices. But you don't want your shape, your thoughts about God's heart to be shaped by your sin. And if it is, you're missing a big part of God's heart because God's heart hasn't been created by your sin. <laughs> and God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. So there was a time before centered in, and God's heart was a certain way. And sin didn't now come and change God's heart. <laughs> right? And so you want to be able to reason about these things from an eternal uh, perspective. And so the high priest, that term, the high priest would be anointed by God to minister the things pertaining to himself. Right? That's why he would anoint a priest. If you look in the Old Testament, God talked about Israel when they were supposed to be kings and priests, when they were supposed to be priests to the world. He says, you couldn't be priests to the world because you didn't know me. And the whole point of being a priest of the world is that you would come and minister God to the people. And so God anointed the Son when He said, let there be light. And the purpose of Him anointing the Son when He said, let there be light in Genesis is so that God Himself could minister Himself to creation and to mankind. So the, the high priest would be brought forth out of God to minister the passion in God's heart. We all know what passion is, don't we? You got a passion? I got a passion. We have passion. Do you know why we can even have a passion? Because God first had a passion. And God is itching. He's burning to express that passion. And he needs someone that can express it for him. Right? And so the high priest is anointed to express or to minister God's passion to creation, of which part we're the pinnacle of creation to God. We're the apple of his eye. So he anoints someone that can minister his passion, the passion in his heart to you and I, right? So simply put, we could say that the high priest is an extension of God himself. So that God can express himself and be himself and accomplish his dream for his life with you. That's the whole point of the high priest. You see how that's deeply personal and deeply relational and it's deeply intimate? It's not all stuffy. It's not all stoic. It's not about all these different things. I mean, we, listen, I grew up as an altar boy in the Catholic Church, and this isn't to despise the Catholic Church, but we did all these things in the service, and all these, it was all about the performance of all these different things, and it stripped out intimacy. It stripped out relationship. I want to tell you, whatever you think about the temple service, it was all talking about God being passionate in His heart about His life with you and Him ordaining Jesus to come and minister that passion to you so you could be caught up into intimacy with Him. That's what the whole point is. And so when you look at the high priest in the Scriptures, and I say this for people who like to read the Scriptures, not all of you like to read the Scriptures, that, that's fine. But the high priest and the tabernacle are supposed to be prophetic pictures of God's ministry to the world. Of God's ministry to the world. And you guys can go off and ask yourself that question, right? What's God's ministry to the world? What is He trying to minister to the world? And you could just walk away thinking about that. So those things, the tabernacle and the high priest, they're pointing to God ministering himself to the world. That's what God wants to do. He wants to minister himself to you. 
He wants to offer himself to you. That's what he wants to do. That's what the whole purpose of him anointing the son is. And so we talk a lot about my ministry, your ministry, what ministry have we been given? We have the helps ministry. We have the administration ministry. We have the children's ministry. We have the music ministry. We have the teaching ministry. We got all these different kinds of ministries. I want to tell you there's only one ministry. It's God's ministry. It's God's ministry. And we need to understand that God's ministry is got blinders. It's solely focused towards the end of Him ministering Himself to you. That's it. That's the whole point of it. And this is what the high priest is all about. But because that word, high priest, high priest, high priest, we're very intellectual beings. We love our intellects. It's okay we can think. There's nothing wrong with thinking. Right? But we, we don't want our thinking and our intellectualism to strip the passion in God's heart. Because you think I'm passionate? You think you know people who are passionate? You think you know people who feel things deeply? We talk all the time about we feel the feels. We call it an empath. I want to tell you the most passionate person that ever existed is God Himself. The most deeply passionate, intimate, personal being, person that ever was, is God Himself. And we've got God as like the great and powerful Oz. He's like a voice behind a curtain. And we don't realize it, but God's become very depersonalized to us because we haven't seen what His ministry is about. And we've allowed the sin that entered the earth to now paint a picture of what His ministry is about. And we think His ministry is about pointing out people's sin. But what was His ministry before sin came in? Because God's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And His ministry has never changed. So we'll look at some verses that talk about His ministry. And you can go back and read these verses. I'm going to read a bunch of them and we'll stop there um, with those verses and I'll explain them. But these verses are actually steeped with high priest language and what the high priest is and what it was all about. So you can go back and read them for yourself. You can write it down if you like. But we're going to start with Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. We're going to read through a bunch of these verses. You can follow along or not, um, but I'm going to read through them, and then we'll explain some of them. We'll focus in on a couple parts. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's Greek scholars that say that's the most expressive language in the whole New Testament. And we tend to read, oh, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. The Greek scholars, and I'm not going to blast you out because I'm already loud, but I'll give you the visual. Paul, they say Paul would be more like, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. It would be more like, oh my goodness, can you imagine what God has done? Where you'd be like beside yourself and you'd be caught up in, wait a second, how could this be true? What, what? And then you'll find all of your conclusions and all of your thoughts about God and your life with God. You would find them immediately blown up, especially if you're Paul and you were a Pharisee of the Pharisee. If you lived your whole life thinking that God wanted you to perform all these laws and all these rules and all of a sudden you start to see the will of God and you're just blown away. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Why heavenly places? The heavenly tabernacle, the heavenly sanctuary, the ministry that was ordained from the beginning. According as He has chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world. When? Before the foundation of the world. Not after sin entered in. So Paul's talking about something that he sees predates sin. And he's, he's coming to the place where he sees what God was always doing. And he's realizing all my thoughts about what God was always doing always were born from my thoughts about sin. Look what he says. According to his chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Without blame, even before the foundation of the world. Having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, 
to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he has made us accepted in the beloved, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, wherein he has abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of his will. Having made known unto us the mystery of his will. His will is from before the foundation of the world. His will is not from the sin of man. From before, okay? Having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he has purposed in himself. That's going to be huge. We're going to focus on that. That in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things after the counsel of his own will, that we should be to the praise of his glory, who first trusted in Christ, in whom you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after you believed, you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. <laughs> that is oozing with what God purposed in himself to do from before he created anything. And Paul's breaking that down, right? So having, um, this is the part we're going to focus on. Having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself. This is talking about the high priest and God bringing forth the high priest out of himself. So the, the first thing the apostle Paul says there is that God purposed to do something in himself. That's the let us. Do you see what I'm saying? Did he say, let you? Did he look at Adam after he made Adam and then look at Adam and say, let us? Or did he say, let us before Adam was made? Okay, so God purposed to do something in himself before he made anything. Do you know what that means? He doesn't need your help. He doesn't need your contribution. He doesn't need your works, right? Your works can't accomplish what he purposed in himself. My works can't, your works can't, our works are as dung towards the end of God accomplishing what he purposed in himself from before the foundation of the world. That's a very painful thing for us. And you might want to say, well, do we play some role? Well, yeah, we play some role. Mary sat at the feet of Jesus. And Jesus said that was the one thing that was needful. Right? So if you want to understand the role you play, yeah, you allow your heart to be persuaded of the truth that the gospel declares about God and what he's willed for you from before the foundation of the world. Right? And how he willed that it would be by himself that you would have that. That's why it's to the praise of his glory and not to the praise of your own glory. You see? So that after it's done, you wouldn't look at yourself and think that you've done something to do it. But you would look at it and you say, look what God purposed for me. And he purposed to do it in himself apart from my contribution. Oh, glory to God. Right? That's what you would say there. So... God purposed to do something in himself, just like Genesis says, let us. So God, when Paul says God, that is Father, Son, and Spirit, we're passionate about something. We all know what it means to be passionate about something. We all want to be ourselves, don't we? I mean, no, there's that whole cheer song. You want to go where everybody knows your name. Why do you want to go somewhere where everybody knows your name? It doesn't just mean they know your name, Greg. It means they know you. And you can be yourself there. Norm could be himself there. And in fact, if you watch the cheer show, Norm left his house because he didn't think he could be himself with his wife. Now Norm is a character, so we're not going to blame his wife for what Norm was doing. Right? But Norm came to cheers because he could be himself there. We're all passionate about being ourselves. No, God, that is Father, Son, and Spirit, were passionate about something. And you know what they were passionate about? They were passionate about being themselves. We're trying to put personal language to God that we all identify with. 
They were passionate about being themselves. There was a burning in their bones for something and they purposed in themselves to bring it about. In themselves to bring it about. Not that you would bring it about. Not that I would bring it about. They were passionate about something. They wanted to find somewhere they could be themselves or a people that would let them be themselves to them and they purposed in themselves to bring that about. We're talking high priest still. Paul says, God has abounded towards us, making known to us his will. Making known to us his will. Jesus says in John 15, no longer do I call you servants, but I call you friends. And the reason why I call you friends now is because I'm telling you everything that the Father has said to me. So now they're knowing the will of the Father. They're beginning to hear what the Father, Son, and Spirit purposed in themselves from before the foundation of the world. And so now Jesus says, I call them friends. And so God abounded towards us, Paul says, to show us his will so that it would no longer be a mystery. So that we could no longer be wondering, what is this guy up to? God wants you to know what he's up to now and what he's always been up to. And what he's always been up to happened before sin came in. And so we're not going to let sin now tell us what God's doing. What we can do is we can see not even sin coming in could keep God from being himself. Not even sin coming in could keep God from the passion in his heart. That's the best way you could look at it. So God wants you to know what he's up to. He wants you to know what's in his heart and what he's after. So you can live from a confident expectation. How many of you love the unknown? How many of you are like, I love it when I don't know? In fact, most of what we do is so we can figure it out so that we know. <laughs> because we don't like it when we don't know. And then we try to bring ourselves peace. You just got to be comfortable with the unknown. That sounds real wise in worldly terms. That's a lie. That's why God abounded towards us in wisdom and prudence so that we could know. <laughs> so that we could live from a confident expectation. And so God wants that for you. He wants to give you a certainty of what the sum total of your life is. So you could live from that revelation. I'm sure it's like this for women too, maybe in a different way. But men, why do we men have a midlife crisis? They're looking over the sum total of their lives and they want to know if it amounted to anything. And if they don't think it amounted to anything, they feel like a loser. And so God's trying to rip that out and give you a knowing. He wants to give you a certainty of what the sum total of your life will be. And he does that by revealing to you what he's purposed from before the foundation of the world. What he's purposed to be for you and what he's purposed to do with your life. So that you can live from the sum total of what God's going to do with your life instead of trying to live from the sum total of what you think you can do with your life. And then you can actually enjoy the things that you do because you're not weighing your life in the balance all the time because you have an expected end, a certainty of an outcome. You're not trying to get an outcome. You're not judging your life by the outcomes you think you have, but you're living from the outcome that will be of your life because of what God showed you. And that's why Jeremiah comes and says, or God says in Jeremiah chapter 29, 11, what does he say? I know the thoughts that I think for you. Thoughts of peace. And not of evil. And why is he even expressing what his thoughts are? He says, so you can have an expected end. So you could see the sum total of your life. So you're not busy looking at your life and thinking, what has it been about? Right? You know, it does something for us to see what the outcome of our lives will be. That our lives matter that there's consequence there. It, it really does do something for us. It, it gives stability to our lives. It removes the unknown. It brings forth order in our lives. It gives us peace and safety. It hides us in the cleft of the rock. It hides us in the bosom of the Father. We don't like it when things are chaotic. We don't like it when things seem out of control. We don't like it when we think our life is out of control. And sometimes we think our life is out of control when we don't know what the end of our conversation will be. We don't like it if we're not sure if our life matters. We don't. We get very upset. We find comfort in knowing how things will go. 
We do. In fact, the liberty comes to us. We're able to move about freely if we know how things will go. It's like we, we, we first think that has to be settled before we can live. And it's true. Those things do have to be settled before we can live. But you can't settle those things by looking in the world. There's even studies that show children who have set meal times in a set bedtime that they're much happier. And you know why they say they're much happier? The reason is there's a peace and safety with them knowing how things will go. They're not wondering when they'll eat. They know. They're not wondering when they'll go to bed. They know. And so they're free to be children because they're not busy thinking about all the other things. Right? It removes the burden of them carrying the weight of their own lives and how their own lives will go is what it does for them. People, guys, we're always trying to figure out what we're meant for and what life is all about. We all, everyone is. Whether you believe in God or not, Paul found the, the philosophers on Mars Hill and they had erected a monument to the unknown God. And Paul come and said, I come to tell you about that God that you don't know. But you're still seeking Him even though you don't know Him. And so we're all trying to figure out what we're meant for and what life was all about. People even go to Ancestry.com. I mean, that's like a multi-billion dollar business. Because people are obsessed with trying to find out something about their lives. We think if we could somehow ascertain where we're from, then we'll know where we're going. And I just want to say, that's true. But you're supposed to come to the place where you ascertain that you came from God. And then when you come to the place where you realize you came from God and how it is He brought your life forth and that He brought your life forth by laying down His own life for you, then you start to become very convinced about where you're going. And now there's no question about where I'm going because I know where I'm from. Right? If we know where we're going, man, we find a peace and a stability. We know how things would go. That's why Paul comes and says, because of that, Paul comes and says, God made his thoughts known to us in Christ. <laughs> so we could ascertain all those things by looking at Jesus, the mystery of God's will for our life. Right? And so I said this already, but I, I'm just going to hit it again because we're talking about God's will. And Paul makes a point. God's will didn't begin when sin entered the earth. God's will didn't begin when sin entered the earth. God's conscience isn't stained with your sin. It never was. It's our conscience that's stained with sin. We're the ones that began judging everything by our sin. We're the ones that began judging God by our sin. We're the ones that did all of, all of that. God's will has been from the beginning and it's never changed. I know this can sound surprising, but I'm just going to say it as radical as I can because that's how I get down. I don't want there to be any confusion. I want to draw a line. So I know it could be surprising, but the gospel doesn't begin with the sin of the world. It doesn't. It doesn't begin with the sin of the world. What God purposed to do in Christ doesn't find its beginning with the sin of the world. The sin of the world isn't the father of God's passion. <laughs> God did not derive His passion and His purpose and His dream from the sin of the world. He had it before the sin of the world. The gospel is not the message of what God's done because of sin. That's not what it is. I'm going to say that again. What is the, the, my pastor used to say to me, we're kicking over some sacred cows. The gospel isn't the message of what God's done because of sin. Paul just said God purposed something in himself before the foundation of the world. He just said that in the verses that I read. Sin being removed, as far as the east is from the west, is just a byproduct of God being himself in God following the passion that's been in his heart from the beginning when he said, let there be light. Right? And I'm going to keep saying this. I just, want to, I just want to cause people cognitive dissonance so they start to think. Even if you decide you don't like me, I don't care. I want you to go off and think about this with God. 
God didn't send Jesus to deal with sin, per se. There was no sin when God said, let there be light. And that was God sending forth from himself the Son. Because the Son has been from the beginning. And there was no sin when God said, let there be light. And so Jesus was not anointed and brought forth out of the Father to deal with sin. He wasn't. Are you saying Jesus didn't deal with sin? No. Yes, Jesus dealt with sin. But the reason Jesus dealt with sin is because it stood opposed to the passion that was always in God's heart. So really, if we, if we looked at it right, Jesus came to accomplish what God purposed in himself from the beginning. That's what he came to accomplish. And since sin and death entered and then tried to stand opposed to what God's dream was, that Jesus was brought forth from the Father, that Jesus then came forth from the Father to conquer sin and death in the flesh and in creation and accomplish what Father, Son, and Spirit purposed in themselves from the beginning. Do you see what I'm saying? It's just God doing what He always purposed to do. And His sin and death can't keep Him from doing what He decided He was going to do before there was sin and death. Jesus isn't plan B. This isn't what God decided to do because sin and death entered in. God didn't have to draw up another play. It's not like halftime of the football game and now God was losing because of sin and death. And because sin and death had done some powerful things, now God went into the locker room at halftime and had to change the game plan. Sin doesn't change God. Sin doesn't change God. Most of us have been taught things about God as if sin does change God. And we miss the beauty of what he's doing there. So not even sin and death can get in the way of God loving you unto life. Can you imagine if sin and death could keep God from being himself? Do you think sin and death can keep God from being himself? And in fact, I'll say it this weird way. People might not like it and they'll judge it. In fact, sin and death coming into the picture, it's not that sin and death are the father or the, the source of this, but it's like, once sin and death entered into the picture, it's like it became easier for sinners to see what was always in God's heart. Because I think we struggle to see what was in God's heart beforehand. Sin and death cannot get in the way of God being himself. There's a baseball player that I always liked. I thought he was funny. He's retired now. His name was Manny Ramirez. And he's in the Hall of Fame, right? And he played for the Boston Red Sox, and he helped break the curse in Boston. For those of you that are Red Sox fans. Well, this guy's a Hall of Famer, and I mean, he was really good. And, and after one of the games, a reporter asked him about all these amazing things he'd done in the game. He might have hit for the cycle or something, which means he hit a home run, he hit a triple, he hit a double, and he hit a single in the game. And so the reporter's just like asking him about all these wonderful things that he did. And you know what the guy, you know what he says? It just makes me laugh. Maybe it's just me. He says it so funny. He says, that's just Manny being Manny. And you're thinking about God, right? And you're thinking about God. I held up the cross. We're supposed to see that's God. That's Father, Son, and Spirit pouring out of themselves their life. That's Father, Son, and Spirit laying down their life. That's Father, Son, and Spirit just being themselves. That's just God being God. And that's who God always was. He didn't just now become self-sacrificial love because sin and death entered in. God's passion has always been to lay down his life for you. And his passion to lay down his life for you isn't just because of sin. His love didn't just become self-sacrificial once sin entered in. His love has always been self-sacrificing. His passion has always been to lay down his life for you. He's always been other-centered. He's always been other-focused. He's always been thinking about what somebody else needs. He's always been thinking about what he can do for somebody else to give them life. He doesn't think of sin like human beings do. When he finds someone in sin, he's not self-focused. He's not focused on his aggravation because of their sin. Like maybe our earthly fathers might have been sometimes. He's focused on them and their hurt and their pain. He's focused on the passion he feels in his heart to empty himself for them. When God finds someone in sin, do you know what he's thinking? I want to empty myself to heal them. That's what he's thinking. That's what God's thinking. First John says God is love. That's true. 
Most of us read love in the Bible, though, and we don't realize it, and we define it by our own idea of what love is. So it's true that, that John says God is love, but it isn't just any kind of love. I'm going to say this a bunch of times for Gary and Shelley because they like to make a joke. I do it on purpose. God is self-sacrificial love. God provides himself a lamb. He provides himself as a lamb. He makes himself, God Almighty, he makes himself vulnerable to us. He submitted himself to us. You might think of when did he do that? How do you think he ended up on a cross? He made himself vulnerable to us. He submitted himself to us to make himself an offering to us so that he could offer himself to us. God wants to love somebody else. That's what he's thinking of. It's like the Queen song, find me somebody to love, find me somebody to love. God's looking for somebody that he can empty himself, pour himself out for. And so God's looking for somebody to love He's looking for someone else to love. He wants to love somebody else. And the way he wants to love them is very specific. And it don't look like the world's idea of love. It's a very specific way that he wants to love you. And I just want to tell you, the way that he wants to love you is by pouring himself out for you. That's how he wants to love you. He wants to pour himself out for you. Like the scriptures talk about a drink offering or a meal offering. Now I'll reveal part of my sordid history, but I come from like, a street type of background. Lots of my friends died. We had this silly thing that we would do when we were teenagers and we were disturbed and in dark places. When that many of your friends die and you don't know God like I know God now, you think weird things and you do weird things. You know what one of the things we used to do? We used to pour out liquor for our friend when they died. And it was like a drink offering. God's desiring to love you in a way where he makes himself the meal offering. He makes himself the drink offering. He pours himself out for you. He wants to empty himself towards the end of you having his life. That's what he wants to do. He wants to lay down his life for somebody else. God's walking around looking for someone that he can lay down his life for. And we got God in the place where we think he's looking for us to lay down our life for him. You don't have life to give. He wants to serve people with his life. It's been that way from the beginning. God purposed in himself from the beginning for you to have his life. He wants the same intimacy with you that he has in himself, where you can be the object of his self-sacrificial love. That's what he's after. That's what he's after for your life. That's what he's always been after, right? And so to get into the father and the son and to keep talking about the, the language of the high priest, the father anointed the son for the ministration of his life. That's why he anointed the son. He anointed the son for the ministration of his life. Ministration means to minister his life to people. That's why he did it, right? Jesus said, the father has life in himself. And he has given that I would have that same life in myself. Jesus is talking about the father anointing him to serve people with life. And so in the father is life. But then the, the father has this thing in himself. Well, he's desiring to pour out his life for someone. He's desiring to lay down his life for someone. He's desiring to offer up his life to people. That's what the father's got going on. Because he wants you to have his life. You can't have it if he doesn't lay it down. You can't have it unless he pours it out of himself. And so he brought forth from himself the Son, the Christ, the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, when he said, let there be light. And when God said, let there be light, that was God emptying himself. That was God pouring out of himself his life so that you could have and partake of his life. That was God laying down his life for creation. The cross is not the first place God laid down his life. It's not the first place that he poured out of himself his life. It's not the first place where he emptied himself. He emptied himself when he said, let there be light. And he brought forth out of himself, he poured out of himself the life he has in himself. And the reason why he did that was to make himself an offering to all of us. 
We're busy, we're busy with the God who doesn't need anything from us and is trying to give us everything. But we've been taught a God that wants everything from us. Go read Acts 17. Paul says God is not in need for people to serve Him with the works of their hands as if He is in need of anything. <laughs> it's shocking that it's actually in the Bible. <clears throat> Jesus says he only does what he sees the Father do. Does everybody, everybody agree Jesus said that? Well, one of the things I started asking myself when God started cracking this open for me is I, I said, well, when did, you, when did Jesus see you lay down your life? Because Jesus says, I only do what I see the Father do. So the only way Jesus could come and lay down his life on the cross is if he had first seen the Father lay down his life. When did he see the Father lay down his life? I said, what? I know, I'm one of these guys that thinks. The thinking is only so good that you end up with a deeply personal, intimate knowledge of God. Right? So when did Jesus see the Father lay down his life for creation? I just told you. When God said, let there be light, that's when. God is called the Father of lights. In him is life. In him is light. And when he said, let there be light, he was emptying himself. He was pouring himself out. He was laying down his life for creation. That's what he was doing. That was a self-sacrificial love, wasn't it? <laughs> He's always been a self-sacrificial love. That was the father emptying himself for the good of his creation. The scripture comes and calls Jesus the light. And I want to say it radically like this because I know people want to argue and fight about the Trinity. And I don't think any of those people even understand what they're talking about or what they even think they know. But I'll say it like this for the point of... <laughs> Forgive me, I don't do it to antagonize. I do it to reveal the foolishness of some of our arguing. Human beings think a lot about their intellects. And a lot of times we get into fighting about doctrines just because we think something is right and we don't even know why we're fighting about it. We're just fighting because we think it's right. And I've been saying this a lot and I'm going to preach a whole message about it, but God in Deuteronomy talked about his doctrine dropping like the dew. When you look at that word doctrine, do you know what it says? The meaning of that is to catch someone else up into a marriage. So God's doctrine is with the intent to catch you up into intimacy with him. And whatever you want to argue about, about what you think about the Trinity, what you think about this, first figure out how what you think catches somebody up in a marriage, and then argue. First figure out how what the other person thinks gets in the way of someone being caught up in a marriage before you start arguing. Because so many times we get to arguing based on our intellectual thoughts or beliefs about what we think the scriptures say. And we miss the point. We call it missing the forest for the trees, right? God's doctrine. God dropped his doctrine like dew. And his doctrine is Jesus. And he dropped that doctrine for the point of catching people up into a marriage with him, a union, an intimacy, right? So Jesus is the light. Jesus is the father laying down his life for the world. Jesus is the father laying down his life for the world. From the beginning, God is wanting to lay down his life for people, for you and for me. And the high priest is anointed to minister the things pertaining to God's desire to pour out his life for you. God doesn't desire you to pour out his life, your life for him. You don't have life. God's desiring to pour out his life for you. That's why he said, let there be life. You see that? Jesus says in Acts 20, 35, it's more blessed to give than to receive. You guys remember that verse? It's more blessed to give than to receive. But because we don't see that Jesus is describing the heart of God, because we don't see that Jesus is talking about a self-sacrificial God, because this world doesn't know a God like that. This world knows a God that demands from the people. This world knows a God that demands people to pour themselves out for God. We don't know a self-sacrificial love. And so Jesus, when he says it's more blessed to give than receive, he's talking about God. He's not trying to give us some law to perform where I could look at Jay and say, well, you know, Jay, it's more blessed to give than to receive. So you need to go over there and make an offering. The 
It's not a law to follow. When Jesus says it's more blessed to give there, he's not giving us something where we're going to judge ourselves by, where we're going to say, well, the good and the right thing to do is to give because it's more blessed to give than to receive. If that's the heart that you're doing it from, you don't understand God still. And you're trying to mimic God apart from the knowledge of God. So when Jesus said it's better, it's more blessed to give than receive, I mean, Hebrews goes on to say that by all accounts, in every situation, it's the lesser who is blessed by the greater. It's the lesser that receives something from the greater. Well, between us and God, which one's the greater and which one's the lesser? So between us and God, which one's going to be pouring out their life for the other one? Between us and God, which one's going to be laying down their life for the other one? Between us and God, which one is going to be emptying themselves for the other one? I promise you, we're busy with the God who wants to empty himself for you. That's the burning in his bones. He wants to be himself in your life. And who he is is the kind of person that lays down his life for someone else. Who he is is the kind of person that pours himself out for someone else. Who he is is the kind of person that empties himself for someone else. And oh, guess what? You're the object of his infection. You're the someone else. This is what the high priest is supposed to teach all of us. But we've missed it, right? So listen, we have natural eyes, and we'll finish with this. We have natural eyes, and we have natural senses. And that, I don't want to say it's wrong or it's bad, it's not. But because we have natural eyes and natural senses, we, we don't see God with our natural eyes. I don't say you can't. I don't say there, there, there can't be a miracle where you saw God once. But we don't see God with our natural senses, our natural sight. And I don't say you can't touch God with your natural senses. I don't say there can't be a miracle. But we don't touch God with our natural senses either. We don't have that. And so these things in the scriptures are meant to make the invisible God visible. You see how what I did today? I admit I'm not an eloquent speaker. No, I'm the worst TED Talk giver that ever existed, right? But I'll tell you what's in my heart to do is that the things that were in God's heart from the beginning could be plopped out in the open and you could see what's really in his heart because then now that's making the invisible God visible. And do you know what it becomes like? It becomes like you're touching him, you're handling him, you're eating with him just like the apostles did with the glorified Jesus, right? You start to have intimacy with the God who is self-sacrificial who was always other person focused and you're the other person. And now you start walking with that God. You start knowing that God, right? God is deeply personal. He is deeply relational. And what I want to say about this, and it, it seems obvious. So people in my age group, we would say, nah, duh, like that's obvious, right? God's the father of intimacy. Well, that, we struggle to know how that computes because we don't see him with our natural eyes and we can't touch him with our senses. But he's the father of intimacy. The reason there is even a such thing as intimacy is because of how deeply relational God is. There can be no intimacy unless he's intimate. There can be no relationships unless he's relational. There can be no personal connection. There can be no personal intimacy unless he's first personal. And so God is passionate about intimacy. He's not just passionate about any kind of intimacy. Do you know the kind of intimacy he's passionate about? The kind that can only come from you pouring out your life for the well-being of somebody else. That's the kind of intimacy he wants to have with you. And some of you maybe understand this thought, but I promise you, you feel real close to somebody that you know that will lay down their life for you. A rapport develops. An intimacy develops. That's the kind of intimacy God anointed the Son to catch all of us up into. The kind where we could see that he's self-sacrificial and that he's always wanted to lay down his life for us and pour out his life for our well-being. That will catch you up into an intimacy with him. I have a friend to this day that I don't see almost ever anymore. And there's a bond between this guy and I. You know why? Because he would die for me. And 
I don't even know why he would. And even when I think about it today, it brings tears to my eyes because I haven't seen him in a long time. And that, you know, in the physical, you could think there's a distance. But there's an intimacy, there's a bond between me and him because I know he laid down his life for me. That's the same kind of thing that God's trying to catch you up into. He's trying to show you his burning, the passion in his heart, his ministry is to lay down his life for you, to pour himself out for you, to empty himself so that you could have his life. How can he get you his life unless he first lays it down? This is what the high priest is all about. That's the ministry of the high priest from the beginning. Not about this little thing over here to perform or that little thing to perform. It's not about all the rituals. All those rituals were there in the Old Testament, but they were pointing to this. They were pointing to God offering himself on the altar. That's why it says God prepares the table. God prepared a table. And you know what's on the table for you to eat? Himself. That's why the priest would say, the body of Christ. <laughs> He's offering you the Father's life. The Father prepared a body for His Word. That His body could be broken. And a table could be prepared. And He could offer you Himself. Right? And when you saw that, that would catch you up into an intimacy. When you saw that God Almighty made himself vulnerable to you, that he made himself vulnerable to you, that he cracked his, so he could crack his chest open and plop his heart out on the table so you could see. Man, that will catch you up into intimacy. Right? So when you think of the high priest, think of God desiring to minister himself to you. And the way he would minister himself to you is he would shower you in love. The way he would shower you in love is he would show you that the passion in his heart was always to lay down his life for you. That develops a bond. It does. It does. Right? So, glory to God. Thank you, Father, that you're always preferring us over yourself. Lord, we didn't even know it's in the scriptures that love prefers people over themselves. <laughs> we still don't see that about you. We thank you, Lord, that you prefer us over yourself. We thank you, Lord, that it's always been your intent to lay down your life for us, that you've only ever wanted to pour yourself out for us, that the joy you feel in your heart is that you could find someone that would let you empty yourself for them. Father, we are that people. In the same way that the scripture says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Father, we are the people that will let you be yourself with us, Lord. We are here and we call upon your name, Lord, and we will gladly let you lay down your life for us. We will gladly let you pour yourself out for us. Thank you for offering yourself on the altar. Thank you for allowing your body to be broken so that we could feed on your life. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Glory to God. Thank you, Father. Y'all are awesome.